Okay, on your way in. Um, first of all, I just want to say it's a great honor to be here. Thank you so much for coming. It's a thrill to be able to address you in such a <laughs> thank you uh, in such a wonderful forum. So I want to talk to you today about the episode of David and Bathsheba, a very difficult episode to understand indeed. And I want to talk to you today about its aftermath. In the aftermath of that episode, as you know, the child that is conceived through the sin of David and Bathsheba dies after a short illness. David prays for him to survive, but he ultimately dies. The question I want to really address with you, or the first question I want to address with you, is why does Shlomo live? Shlomo, King Solomon, is born in the immediate aftermath of the story of David Batshevitz, right after the death of the first child. And not only does Shlomo live, but God seems almost like ecstatic about his birth. God says um, that God names him. If you look at the text, you'll find at the very end of your source sheet, right? which is to say that David calls him Shlomo, but Bahashem Ahivo, God loved him. And you have to ask yourself, like, he's just a little baby. What did he do? And all of a sudden, no, God just falls in love with this little baby. And it's so strange. Right after the death of this other baby, God just falls in love with just a little baby. What did he do? So much so that that Solomon all of a sudden gets another name. Natananavi hears about the name Solomon and calls him another name, Yedidya Ba'avur Hashem, literally, on behalf of God. Which is to say, like, God says, no, 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 that's Solomon's name, but I'm going to name him my name. It's my special child. We're going to call him Yedidya. What is this? And, and, and by the way, it seems to be foretold. If you go back earlier, back in Perak Zion, uh, if you look at the very end of your source sheets, God says that there's going to be this child that you're going to have, a child that's going to build the Beit HaMikdash, towards the end of your last page, you're going to have a child still, and I'm going to establish his malchus. His, he's going to be the one who's going to build this temple. And I'm going to establish his, his, his household forever. And then listen to these strange words. Ani I'm going to be like a father for him. And he'll be like a child. And it like actually happens, right? Because who names a child, right? That would be the father. And it's like David names the child, and then God comes in there and says, no, 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 I'm going to name the child, right? I'm going to call him Yedidya. It's like it's really true. And, and why is it? Why is it this way? What did Solomon ever do? And why is it that he even survives? And let me just sort of deepen that question for you for a second, why it is that he even survives. In the aftermath of David and Bathsheba, David lives a pretty difficult life. Terrible things happen to him for the rest of Shmuel Bet. 
It's like the high water point of Shmuel Bet is right before David and Bathsheba, and after David and Bathsheba, everything is downhill. Think about what happens after David and Bathsheba, the immediate aftermath. Amnon and Tamar, that's bad news. Amnon dies, right? As a result of that, Avshalom launches his rebellion. Avshalom dies, right? And, and there's civil war on the horizon, and it wasn't enough to just escape one civil war. He has to put down at the end of his, he has to face down at the end of his life a second civil war brewing with Adoniyahu, who also is going to die at the hand of Shlomo. And it's hard to escape the feeling that somehow all of this is related to the aftermath, the sin of Davin Bathsheba, for two reasons. First of all, Natan specifically says, that the sword will not leave your house forever. And this seems to be the sword, right? One brother killing another brother. But it's even more than that. Nathan Anavi says a strange thing to David. He gives him that famous mashal about the kivsat harash, about that little sheep. And when David becomes enraged at that mashal and says, Chai Hashem, by the life of God, keep in mavet that this person who acted so cruelly should die. He also says one last thing. Not only should he die, but that hakivsa yishalem arbatayim. He should pay fourfold for that stolen little sheep, the sheep that he took from the poor guy, the sheep that he used for the Orea Chaba'ala, for the guests that came to him. Natan Anavi says an interesting thing to him. After David repents, after he says, Chatati, I have sinned, Natan says, Gam Hashem Hevir Chatat Chalotamut. God has also wiped away your sin, you will not die. Now, who said anything about death? Why would you have thought that he would die? The answer is, who said anything about death? David said something about death. That's what David himself said. David is the one who proclaims his own sentence. David says, So Nathan says, okay, but you're not going to die. It's not going to be like you said. God's going to allow you to live. But here's the thing. What didn't Nathan say? All he said was, you're not going to die. David said there were two parts to the punishment. One part was, you're not going to die, but there was another part. You're going to pay four times for the little lamb. When did that happen? That wasn't wiped away. When did David pay four times for the little lamb? Who was the little lamb in the mashal? Bathsheba. When did he pay four times? Who is Bathsheba? If you remember the Natan's analogy, how did Natan characterize that little lamb that the poor man loved so much? What did the poor man do with that little lamb? Do you remember? It's in your store sheets. You can look at it later. But the language is, there was this little lamb that he loved so much, he treated it so well, and he slept with that little lamb in his bosom, Vatashkiveo Becheko, Vatahilo kebat. It was like a daughter to him, the little lamb. Her name was daughter. Ever wonder what Bathsheba means? We all think it means daughter seven. Might mean daughter swear. The daughter about whom people swear. First Uriah. Chai Hashem, by the life of God, I will not go back to her tonight. Then David, at the very end of his life, when Bathsheba herself comes and says, you swore to me that Solomon would be king, the daughter about people who people would swear, but she's a daughter. Strange. She's Uriah's wife. 
But somehow in the mashal, she's not portrayed as a wife. She's portrayed as this little kivsa that's like a daughter. Now, why that should be true is anyone's guess. I have a little bit of a theory about it. I don't know whether the theory is correct. I'll share with you my theory. And, I'll, and, and you'll see in a moment why I think the theory is true. But the theory might be that, you know, Uriah and Bathsheba seem to have been childless. They couldn't have children together for whatever reason. So what happens when you're childless, when a man loves a woman and they're together and they don't have children? What happens sometimes is that his love for his wife evolves to express also the love for the phantom child that they never had. That she's not just his wife, but the tenderness that a father would give to a child to take care of a child. And if he doesn't have a child in his life, he'll give that kind of tenderness, that daughterly tenderness to his wife also. You see it in Elkanah. Do you remember when Elkanah tries to comfort Hannah and he says, don't worry, Hannah, everything's okay, right? Why do you need children? My love for you is like ten children, right? That's what husbands do sometimes. So Uriah had that kind of relationship with Bathsheba too. He really was, she really was like a Bat to him, really was like a daughter. And Takiv Sayyishalam Arbatayim, David had said, you'll pay four times for the little sheep. When did David pay four times for the little child? How many children does David lose in the aftermath of David and Bathsheba? He loses the little baby. Next, he loses Amnon. Next, he loses Avshalom. Finally, he loses Adoniyahu. It comes true. He loses four children for the little child sheep that was taken away. But that's such a terrible punishment for a terrible crime. And the question you have to ask yourself is the question that I asked you before that you really have to come back to, which is, how does Shlomo survive? If you were in Beit Din Shalmala, and if it was up to you to decide which children should die, Take a pick, all of David's children, any, right? Pick a child, any child. So you'd say, well, the first child, the child of the sin, yes. But who would be next in line to die after that first child? Would it not be the second child, the very next child of the stolen wife? I mean, that's who it would be, but it doesn't happen. Shlomo survives. It's crazy. How does he survive? God loves him. Everything is great, right? How do we understand this? I want to suggest that the Nubi explains it to us in a bone-chilling way. Here's the introduction to the theory. When God forecasts to David that he is going to have an heir, an heir that will build the Beit HaMikdash, he uses strange language. This is the language you find at the very end of your source sheet. Again, it's plus a yud bait in Shmuel Beit Perak Zion. He says, Soon you will die, but you will have a legacy, children after you. Children that will come from you that have not yet born that will build the Beit HaMikdash. Furthermore, by the way, it's quite interesting. He hears in Perak Zion, that children that he has not yet had will build the Beit HaMikdash. Now remember, when you read the Torah, when you read the Navi, never read with the end in mind. You know the end of the story, but the characters in the story don't know the end of the story. So if you're David and you don't know what's going to happen next, 
and you know that God promised you a child that you don't yet have, and that child that you don't yet have is going to build the Beit HaMikdash, and then the sin of Dovin and Batsheva comes, and Batsheva is pregnant, and she has the child, who do you think that child is, the child that God said is going to die? It's the promised child. Even when Natan says it, the first child, Natan says it, Gam haben hayelud mot yamut. Haben hayelud anyone? What does ben hayelud remind you of earlier in Tanakh? Paro. That was the promised child that Paro was trying to kill, according to Chazal. The special child that was going to be the savior. He's going, it's going to be gone. And I'll take your wives and I'll give you Mecca to your right? Where, where's that language come from? That's how the kingdom was taken away from Shaul. Feels like he's this close to losing everything, this close to losing his kingdom, this close to losing his heir. Right? Is the base of really going to be built anymore? Is the promise gone? David wonders all about that with that first child who dies. He doesn't know there's going to be a second child. And the question you have to ask is, before there was a second child, was it really the first child that was going to die? Was his mouth was ever really threatened? Could it have been that as a result of Dovin Batsheva, it was all going to be over? There never would be a child that built a Beit HaMikdash. Was there a plan A and a plan B? Like, what's happening here? But now listen back to that promise of a child. Back in Perak Zion, at the end of your source sheet, Asher Yetzei the child who comes from you, from your own body, your biological child, he is going to be the one to build this house. Boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, I ask you to consider where have you heard those words before? That phrase appears one time only and only one other time in all of Tanakh, Asher Yetzei that's God to Avram in Perak Tetvav, right before the Brit Ben Absarim. Asher the child that comes from your loins, he is going to be the one who will inherit you. Both David and Avram are concerned about legacy. Nothing means anything if I die and there's no child to take over and there is no legacy. God, at the very beginning of the Jewish people, promises that that legacy will be a biological child who becomes Yitzchak. And at the very end, the final culmination, remember the promise of Avran, you're going to have great nations, Malachim Mechalatzecha Yetzeyu, and kings will come from you, kings that can build the Beit HaMikdash, that is going to be Shlomo. Isn't it interesting that Shlomo and Yitzchak are both introduced with that same language? Is there something Yitzchak-like about Shlomo? And maybe there is. Who was Yitzchak? An impossible child. A child that never should have been born. A child that the laws of physics don't allow for. According to Chazal, sorry, didn't even have a womb. But he's 75 years old. He's 99 years old. You don't have kids when you're that old. Yitzchak is an impossible child. Was Shlomo an impossible child? A child that never should have been born. That the laws, not of physics, but the laws of justice had mandated that Shlomo ought not be born. Two impossible children. Two impossible children named by God. Not that many people get named by God. But God demanded that Yitzchak be called his name. Yitzchak, and he demands that Shlomo gets his new name, Yedidya. 
And if you think about it, if God says about Shlomo that I'm going to be his father, in effect was God saying that about Yitzchak too? That in some sort of visceral way, I am his father. And if you think about it, it's true for everyone. We're all the children of God, right? We say it, the Rambam says it, right? It's the Gemara. Shlosha Shutfin Ba'adam. There's three partners in the creation of man. There's the mother, the father, and there's God. And God is our father for everyone, but somehow more so with some people than others? Like, what does that even mean? And here's a way to think about it. Yitzchak is distinguished for one terrible act that takes place in his life, the Akedah. A moment when God comes down from the mountain and says, take your child to the top of the mountain and kill him. Just kidding. I mean, right? That's a funny joke. Makes a great bedtime story for your kids, right? Like, what was that about? That's what, and, and, you know, centuries of moral philosophers have struggled with the morality of the Akedah. Like, what's with that? take your child to the top of the mountain and kill him. That's like, okay, where does God come off doing that? And Kierkegaard has his theory, and others have their theory. And it seems to me like, what is the most simple, basic way of understanding the morality of the Akedah? Why it was okay for God to ask that? Why God indeed would ask that? If you come down to the question of morality, where does God come off asking for the life of Yitzchak? It seems to me that it boils down to this question. Who is Yitzchak's real father? Imagine a divorce between parents. Imagine there's a custody dispute. A custody dispute. And women usually tend to do better in custody disputes. And part of it might be it's better for the child. But part of it might be that if you think about the child, the child spends nine months in the womb of the mother. And that's not so much the case for the man. There's a visceral kind of connection, a visceral kind of this is my child for the woman in a way that, you know, it's true in the man, technically, the chromosomes and all of that. But... You know, somehow courts are called upon to make this terrible decision where the child's got to go somewhere. There's three partners. What if there was ever another custody dispute? What if the custody dispute involved a God? God, generally speaking, is happy to let human beings have their children, but what if God would ever demand his rights? What if God would ever say, um, excuse me, that's mine. Right over there? That one? That's mine. And like the parent would say, no, 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 this is my child. And God would say, no, I- I'm one of the partners. Excuse me. I'd like him back right now. And you had to take the case to court. Who would win? You'd have to decide who's the most essential parent. So the child would say, well, you know, I mean, I, I bore this child. I'm the most essential parent. But what's the argument of God? What's God's claim on parenthood? It's like God would say, oh, okay, you think you're the child, right? You carried him for nine months. Did you make the biochemistry of your womb? You figure that out, right? That's how it worked, right? God stands behind the whole process. God's the one who makes it possible to have children. In a court case, God would win as the most essential father. Is that's what's going on in the Akeda? Almost like God says there's a nation that's going to start. What is the provenance of this nation? It's not really Avram's nation. It's God's nation. The start of this nation through Yitzchak has to come from a child that was given and said, this is a child that doesn't just carry on the legacy of his biological father. There's another legacy this child is charged with carrying. 
a heavenly father. The father, the heavenly father is treating him as his child. Now, if that's the case for Yitzchak, at the very dawn of Jewish history, the very beginning of the fulfillment of the promise to Avram, then maybe it's true at the end of history, at the final fulfillment of Avram's promise, Malachim the king that will establish a dynasty, maybe it's not enough for that king to be the child of a human being. Maybe one more time that king has to understand that there's another legacy that's going to be built. If you're going to build a house not just for yourself, but a house for God, then you have to know whose child you are. God says, I'll be like his father, and he loves him out of nowhere. I want to take you, we'll come back to these themes at the end of this talk, but in the interim, for the balance of the time that I have with you, and I know they're very clear about time, I think we have until 2.15 together, for the balance of the time I have together with you, I want to go to a story about Shlomo, the story that is, in a way, one of the most puzzling stories that we ever have with Shlomo. It's the story of his dream. You can find on the left side of your source sheets. Thanks. Appreciate that. 220, I have a reprieve. Let's read this story and see if we can make sense of it. Begivon, near Hashem al Shalom b'chalom, God comes to Shlomo in a dream and says, ask anything you want and I'll give it to you. By the way, here's this deal, right? Shlomo really is like a child to God. Who gets that? Right? Did God come to you lately and say, David, ask anything you want, right? Is that, was that last night's dream? Like, that doesn't usually happen, right? It doesn't happen to me. I don't know about you, but it happens to Shlomo, but that's what a father does for a child, right? Oh, little bubble, come over here. Ask what you want. I'll buy it from the toy store just today. I mean, he's treating him like a, like a son. So he says, I, I really want to give you something. What do you want, Shlomo? So Shlomo thinks about it and says, look, you did a great chesed for David. You have... David was, was great. He walked before you in truth and righteousness and in integrity. And because of that, you gave him what he deserved. You gave him legacy. You gave him a child that would be king. And that child is me. I'm the great reward for my father. But father, but now God, I am now king. But there's only one problem. I'm just a child. I don't even know going and coming. And Next foot, skip a passage. I don't even know the difference between right and wrong. I need to know the difference between right and wrong. Because I have to judge these people. It's a difficult job judging these people. Could you help me do it? Could you give me the wisdom to do it? That's his request. And God the Father is very impressed with that request says, that's a very impressive request. I'm really impressive that you chose that toy, right? And you didn't choose 
uh, riches, you could have chosen enemies uh, to conquer and all those things, but you chose Chachma. That's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. God says, I am going to give it to you. Now, if we just stop right there, it's a little strange. Let me ask you a question. Was there like a mechanism through which God gave him the Chachma? Or was it just like a magic wand kind of thing? You know, it's like, okay, I'm giving you Chachma. Poof, your IQ just raised like 100 points. Like, that's what it was? Like, And really, what does he mean by Chachma? He says, I'm just a little child. I don't know the difference between right and wrong. How do you attain the difference between right and wrong, really? How do we attain wisdom? How do most of us attain that? It's not IQ. It's life experience. It's taking that life experience and learning from it, which leads me to this question. How does God give that? If I ask for riches, so God waves the magic wand and I have riches. I get that, right? All of those things. But those are external to me. Chachma is the most internal thing there is. Wisdom. How do you get that bequeathed magically when all of a sudden God says, poof, right? You know, I remember that story about Rabbi Revson actually on a Qantas flight. And, you know, the stewardess comes over with the with the kosher food and it says, Rabbi, here's your kosher food. And she's just holding it in front of him, not giving it to him. Then he realizes, oh, she wants me to bless the food. So he says, okay, hold on just a moment, right? Because that's what kosher food is. <laughs> Poof! Okay, you can take it back now. <laughs> and so it's like, is that it? It's just like a magic poof and you have chachma? You can't get chachma like that. It's just not even God. You can't create a square circle. How do you get chachma like that? How does God bequeath chachma? Or is there a mechanism? And if so, what's the mechanism? The very next story in Tanakh is the story of Solomon with the two babies and the sword. And it's like that great story. Everyone knows the story, right? And Solomon, he's really wise. And this is the proof, right, of Solomon's wisdom. right? Solomon is so smart. Right, let's just go through the story really fast, right? As Tavona, immediately after that, Shtenashim Zonot Alamelach, these two women, they come before the king, and one woman says, My master, you know, me and this other woman, we were both we were both sleeping in the same house, and I had a child in the house with her, but on the third day after I gave birth to a child, this other woman, she also gave birth to a child. Now, sire, you have to understand, we were both together, there was no one else in the house except for us. And then the other woman, her child died. She accidentally suffocated the child in the middle of the night. But then she got up in the middle of the night and took my living child from me while I was sleeping. And she made him sleep in, in, in she made him sleep in, in, in her bosom. That And she took my child and put him with her. I got up in the morning to nurse my child, and he's dead. But I looked at the child, but I looked at the child, it didn't have my features. I realized that this wasn't really my child. And then the other woman says, no, and the other one says, and they're cross talk before the king. And then the king says, they're both arguing, bring me a sword. They bring they bring the sword, cut the child that's living in two, and give one to one and one to the other. 
At that point, the real mother speaks up because she's very compassionate for her child and says, Give her the Yuludah and do not kill the child. Even if it goes to her, that's okay. The Zotomer, the other one says, No, I don't want the child to go to me. I don't want the child to go to you. Split the child. At that point, he knows who the true mother is and says, Award it to her. This is the true mother. Let the child live. And everyone sees this and they realize how smart Shlomo is. Let me ask you a question, boys and girls. If this case happened now, 2017, you're flipping through your Facebook feed and you see there's this cute video on Facebook, this judge, okay, where there's this problem with these two women and they can't figure it out and the judge has this hop, right? He's going to figure it out. It's like he says, so bring me a shotgun, okay? And the judge is standing there and he's aiming at the shotgun and all of a sudden the woman who's really a child says, no, no, don't kill the child. And the judge says, that's the woman, give her the child. And everyone in the courtroom erupts, right? What would you do? You see this on your Facebook feed. It's like you'd see that, you'd be impressed, you'd go on to the next thing, right? Say, oh, that's interesting. You wouldn't say, oh my God, he should be the next Supreme Court Justice. This is Oliver Wendell Holmes. This is amazing. There's never been wisdom like this ever expressed before in the world. I mean, I get it. It's a cute hop. It was clever, right? He figured out a knage. But like, that's the, pr- this shows literally the greatest wisdom in the world. It's hard to believe it. You know, most people would kind of figure it out, maybe, you know? I want to suggest to you today that the story that happens here is not the story that proves Solomon's wisdom. It's the story through which Solomon gets his wisdom. It's the mechanism, the story. This is how he becomes wise. The funny question is, when does his dream end? It seemed like his dream ended right before the story. But you know, in Tanakh, there's dreams that end, that seem like they ended, but they don't quite end. Right? I was talking to Rabbi Liebtag the other day, and he mentioned Yaakov's dream is like that. Yaakov wakes up in the middle of the night and then says, Ah, I can't believe it's really God's house. But then he's sleeping, and then he wakes up in the morning. And it's like, when did that dream end? So the first time he woke up, it doesn't mean he woke up. It means in the dream I woke up. Do you ever have that experience where in a dream you wake up but you didn't wake up and now you're really confused? Is it possible that this was part of the dream too? Shlomo woke up and the next thing that happened is God said, here's a court case. And in the dream, Solomon went through the court case. And maybe this dream is the way that God grants the request of wisdom. But how? Here's how. As you are reading through this, and I pray we have enough time to get through this. As you are reading through this, you might have been playing one of my favorite games. Where have we heard these words before? This story the story of the two women that maybe Solomon is dreaming about. This story has echoes. Listen for the echoes. I'm going to read through five elements of the story in order, and I want you to tell me what other story in Tanakh has each of these five elements in exactly the same order. You ready? Here are the elements. Pasuk Yitzayin. Vatomar Yisha Achad, Biadon Yaniva Yisha Zod Yoshevet Babayit Achad. 
Two people staying in one place. Element number one. Two people in one house. Element number two. Vanachnu yachtav. We were all together. Being together. Being together in one house. Element number three. Vatashkivehu becheka. That woman in the middle of the night, she took the child and she took that child and caused that child, which wasn't really hers, to sleep in her own bosom. What other story has element three, sleeping in someone's bosom? By the way, Tashkiveo Becheka is an unusual language in Tanakh. Only happens two or three times in all of Tanakh. Element four, Kuchuli Cherev, a sword is introduced into the picture. That's what the king wants, a sword to settle this. And finally, the, the plea of the mother, a child that's described as a yulud, right? Together with killing, killing, right? Which is a yulud having to do with death twice, killing, killing. So again, all three elements in order, Two people living in the same place, Yachdav, Tashkivehu Becheka, along with the Cherev, Hayuludachai, Vameit Altmituhu, in order. What's the other story? It is the it is another allegory. Not the allegory of Solomon and the two babies, but the allegory of Natan Hanavi after the sin of David and Bathsheba. All of these elements appear in order. And just look on the right side of your screen. Go to Pasuk Aleph on page 2. I don't know if it's on page 2 for you or page 3. Vayishlach Hashem at Natan Anavi. How does Natan begin the parable? Vayomer lo shnei anashim hayu bi'ir achat. Oh, that's very interesting. Two people were living in one city just like there were two women in one house. Later on, there was this little sheep we were all together in the household and listen to what happened there's the second of the three times that phrase ever appears that he slept with her in his bosom this little sheep and then what does God say by the way, if you put your email in, you'll get the source sheet with the highlights. So if you don't want to highlight them now, we can send that to you. And now the sword will never again, will always be there in your household. The sword. And finally, the punishment. Mot yamut. The child that will be born to you, Mot Yamut, echoing what happens with Shlomo later, at Hayulud Hachai, give her the Yulud Hachai, Vamet Altimituhu. That is very strange. What is happening here? Why would the story of Solomon and the two babies contain all these echoes to the story of David and Bathsheba? But now go and look at the background to the story of David and Shlomo one more time. How did the story begin? We read it before. God comes to Shlomo and says, pick any toy from the toy store, what would you like? And Shlomo says, I would really like Kachman, here's why. Because you really loved my father David. David was terrific, and I am his reward. And you know what David's terrificness is? His emet, his truth, his staka, his righteousness, and his yishrat halev, and his integrity. And now God's listening to this. 
and thinking, okay, so you think you're the reward in justice that David got for all of his integrity, truth, and righteousness? What don't you know, maybe, that I know? What calls into question those three qualities, Emmet, Tzedakah, and Yishrat Aleh, more than the sin of David and Bathsheba? But here is Shlomo saying, I'm just a little guy, I'm a narkatan, I'm very naive. I, I just know, all, the only thing I know is I'm the reward for my father's truth and integrity and righteousness. I grant you, I'm very naive. I would like to know how to judge these people. I need wisdom. Could you help me out with wisdom? I don't even know the difference between right and wrong. I need to know the difference between right and wrong to judge the people. And God's thinking... Yeah, you don't know the difference between right and wrong. And it's like, I'm going to give you wisdom, but wisdom takes life experience. I'm going to give you a concentrated dose of life experience. Actually, if you want wisdom, you want to be a judge, I'm going to take you to law school. What do they do in law school? How do they teach law? Case law. We'll show it like a case that came through the Supreme Court and how actually went through it. So God says, okay, hold on. Here in the dream, I have something to show you. I've got a case to show you. Do you think you can walk through it? The case is going to give you wisdom. And isn't it interesting that the case is full of echoes of David and Bathsheba? What is Shlomo being forced to confront in the dream through an allegory? You want to be wise and you're a little guy, and you think you got injustice what your father deserved, your father didn't deserve you. You're chesed, you're not justice, but let me walk you through this case. There was a really difficult case that I had to solve. A case that involved you, Shlomo. You know what the subject matter was? Should you live or die? The case involved two parents, and they came before me. Who's the king in the allegory? Let's go through the cast of characters. Cast of characters, who's really behind the story of Solomon and the babies? There's two women, and there's a court case. There's a plaintiff. Change the genders. The women are men. Who is the plaintiff in the case? A dead plaintiff who goes up before the king of kings for judgment. Who would that be? It's Uriah. Uriah has a case to be brought against another parent. The defendant is David. Who's the king? Who's the judge? God is the judge. God says, let's walk through the case. I'm going to show you what I did. Let's see if you can figure out what I did. Let's see if you can figure out the case. What we have here, if I'm right, and I hope I can get through all of this with you, is nothing, and I could be wrong. If I'm wrong, I will have wasted an hour of your time. But if I'm right, think about what this means. You are getting the minutes here of a heavenly court case in the, that happened in the next world, and you're seeing it in Tanakh. What happened between Uriah after he died when he came before the king? Let's read it through and see cast of characters. We've got three of them so far. Now we have to figure out who the babies are. Who's the dead baby? In the story of Dov and Bathsheba, who does the dead baby have to be? It's the first baby who dies. Now here's the tricky question, and I admit it's tricky, very tricky. Who is the live child? 
in the story of Dovin Batsheva. So you say it's Shlomo, because Shlomo is a child that lives. That's the most obvious answer, but it's not the only possibility. That's one possibility. Give me another possibility of who could be the, quote, live child in the story of Dovin Batsheva. Very good. Two other possibilities. One is the first child while it's still alive. Right? So in other words, if the court case is lodged immediately after the death of Uriah, while the baby is lying sick, and the question is, will the baby live or die? You could view the baby then that's sick as a live child. You could also see it as a child that's going to die, a dead child, but you could see it as a live child. It depends upon your perspective. So there's two possibilities for live child, either Shlomo or the first child of Bathsheba who ultimately dies while he's still alive. But as someone over here says, there's a third possibility for live child, isn't there? Go back to Natananavi's allegory. There's one more child in the story that we wouldn't have even suspected. She's a child. Her name even means child. And who's the other child? Bathsheba herself. The bat. The sheep that's the bat. What I want to suggest to you is all three possibilities are true in chronological order. The court case is going to proceed through the story, and at the beginning of the court case, the live child is going to be the first child on the scene before any other children are born. That is Bathsheba. Bathsheba is the live child in the beginning. Then, when the first child is born, right... That child can either be referred to as a dead child or a live child, depending upon your perspective. And then when Shlomo is born, at the very end of the case, Shlomo becomes the live child after the first child dies. So it's very confusing, but what, let's walk through it, and I think you'll see what I, what, what I mean. Let me read through it with you. Batoma Ishahat, verse 17. And the first woman said, Be Adoni, my master God. This is Uriah talking in heaven. Let's figure it out. Aniva Ishazot Yoshevet Babait Achad. Me and this other parent and this other man, we were both sleeping in the same house. Now, who's the other man? David. What do you think it means that me and David were, quote, sleeping in the same house? It's a family show, so we don't have to get explicit here, but you understand what it means, right? They were both intimate with the same woman, right? This is his complaint. This is the problem. And again, this is a play off of the allegory of Natan, when Shnei Anashim Hayu Bi'irachat, right? But now, Aniva Yishazot Yoshevet Babayirachat. Now, here's the tricky thing. Uriah says, Va'eled Ima Babayit. What does that mean? Uriah never has a child. What does it mean? Here's what it means. The first bat is who? Batsheva. So what does that mean? It means, again, that my initial union with Batsheva, when I was initially intimate with her as man and wife, that was fine, but I continued to be intimate with her, and we never had children. So what eventually happened? My relationship with her evolved, and not only was I a wife to her, but as a result of our cohabitation together, she became like my child, as the allegory of Natan suggests. And therefore, for a man who can't have kids, who struggles with the problem of infertility, and finally, right, it's like, I couldn't have a child, but the best I could have, I, I, I wanted a legacy, but I didn't. So I had this little child, I had my wife, and I took care of her like a child. My act of cohabitation with her expressed itself not in the fruits of a womb normally, but in the fruits of a phantom kind of child. But Sheva was like my child, so she was my little daughter. 
then, after a little while, this other man switched the genders. This other man comes. And we were together in the house. There was no one else. And this is so plaintive because these are the words from the analogy when Natan is saying, remember how everything is idyllic for Uri and he's in this house and there's no one else but him. It's just little did Uri realize that he wasn't just alone with his family. There was someone else in the house that he didn't really realize, and it was David. So there's a deep irony in Zain Zar Itanu, because, of course, David is the Zar at this point. But anyway, we're all there in this house together, and it's just us. And then what happens is she gives birth also, or he gives birth also. Now, who is this child? This is the child, of course, the first child, the child that Batsheva is pregnant with. But here's what happens. He says, I have to tell you, sire, as Uriah continues his complaint, that child was dead from the minute it was conceived. Vayamat ben Haisha Azot, that child died, Laila Asher Shachba Alav, the night that he slept on it. Now, here in the allegory, it doesn't mean he suffocated it, it means in effect, David suffocated that child, Laila Asher Shachba Alav, which of course means the night he initially slept with her, that child was dead. The act of cohabitation, the illegitimate act of cohabitation, means that child dies. He's over. He's a walking dead man from the womb. You know why, sire? Because let me explain to you what happened. Vatakam Batochalaila. He got up in the middle of the night, Vatikach. At Benima Etzli, he took my little child Batsheva from me in the middle of the night. And of course, that language, boys and girls, of Vatakam Batochalaila Batikach, what does that remind you of in the Davin Batsheva story? Look at the beginning of the Davin Batsheva story, Pasuk Bays, Vayahila Eta Erev, on the right side of your handout, Vayakam David Me'al Mishkavo. In the middle of the night, David gets up, and later on, Pasuk Dalad, and he takes her. Of course, that's what it means, right? Give me a sec. Thank you. So, what happens? He gets up in the middle of the night, and he stole my child, Batsheva, from me. I didn't even know. I was sleeping. I, I couldn't perceive it. I didn't know, but he was sleeping with her. And he caused her to sleep in his bosom. And of course, where does this appear in the David Nebatsheva story? The same way that in the Natananavi story, the little lamb slept, Batsheva slept in the bosom of Uriah. In the complaint is, he took Batsheva and caused her to sleep in his bosom the way it was supposed to be with me. That Benaha mate. Hashkiva Bechiki, and that child that was going to die, he tried to make it sleep in my bosom. What's Uriah referring to? What did David try to do with that child that was going to die? What did he try to get Uriah to believe? Uriah, come home. Why don't you go sleep at home? Uriah, come on. What are you? What are you here for? Go sleep at home. Come on. Why don't you ever go home? And now, after death, he gets it. I figured it out. He was trying to get me to believe that Benaha made Hashkiva Bechayki. He was trying to get that, me to believe that that child that was going to die was mine. He's passing it off as mine. 
Sire, when did I figure all this out? I got up in the morning. What's the morning in this story for Uriah? After he's dead. When I could finally see things clearly. Because in light, in life it was like night. I couldn't see. But now I can see. And I looked out at that child that was supposed to be mine. Because I'm dead now. And I need a legacy. And I wanted to nurture that child from the next world. To somehow give that child something. To allow it to continue. Because this was going to be my legacy. And I looked at that child. And and I looked at that child and it was going to die. And I was thinking about that child. And I didn't recognize him. He didn't look like Uriah. Didn't have any of my features. He looked a lot like David. That's when I figured it out. That's my case. I rest my case. The defense... Now, the problem is that David is not in the next world, so he can't defend himself. So the best he can do is the defense is David's actions. What did David actually do in the world? Well, in essence, David's actions were to try to pass off that baby as Uriah's child and to try to take Bathsheba as his own, which is the very next verse. The next person, which is David, says, The living child, which is to say Bathsheba, that's mine. I want her. And you, Uriah, that, that actually is your child over there. Now that's not going to fly in the heavenly court. That is not going to work. Vizoto Merit and Uriah says, Lolo, that child, the one that's going to die, that's your child. That's your biological child. Beniachai, Batsheva, that one's mine. Right? God, you figure out how to do this. And God says, boy, this was some case. I mean, I didn't know what to do. So, you know, I couldn't figure it out. Because there's a problem over here. Zoto Merit, Zebeniachai, Benechamet. Vizoto Merit, Loki, Benechamet. The problem is, what am I going to do with this first child that's born? David's saying he's not the father. And Uri is saying he's not the father. What happens to a child that doesn't have a father? It dies. A child can't live if there's no father. No one's willing to claim him. Ah, kafuli cherev. Bring me a sword. Child's going to die. Nothing. I wish it up. And by the way, look at what God says about the child. Kahuli cherev, vayaviu a cherev lifnei amelach, vayomra amelach yizru atayelad achai lishnayim. Look what God just called this little child about to die, for the very first time, a living child. The one being in the room who looks at this child and says it could live is God. And the reason it doesn't live is because of you guys. Bring me the living child. Now it's going to die. Bring me the sword. There was a promise. The the promise starts right now. The sword begins right now. Now we know at this moment in the story, and I only have ten minutes left with you, so hang on to your hats. We know at this moment in the story that David, this is the moment when the child is sick. And this is the moment where David prays. But we don't know what he said. It doesn't say what he said. We're about to hear what he said. Now, if you think about what David could say to God at this moment, there's two possibilities. One right and one wrong. What he could say is, I can't afford to lose this child. It's the promised child. 
It's the child that's supposed to build the Beis Amigdash. I can't afford this. It's all going to be gone. My legacy will be destroyed. One possible interest that David has in the child is legacy. But there's another possible interest that he has. Listen to the next thing that happens in the story. And the mother of the, the parent of the living child said, Because his compassion was stirred for the child. No God, my master. Give the other parent the child. Just don't kill it. Let that child be the legacy of Luria. It's like Yibum. It's my biological child, but it's not going to be mine. If the only way this child can live is by not being mine, by carrying on another man's legacy, by not building the temple, by not being king, by just being Uriah's kid, so that Uriah can have a continuation, let that happen. It won't be my legacy. But the child will be alive. The child has to live. That's David's position at this point. That's David's prayer. What does the king do? The king says, that's a very interesting proposal. I could see that saving the child. Only thing is, I've got to run it by the other guy. Now the question is, what will Uriah say? On the one hand, it's what Uriah wants. I wanted to, to nurture this child that was going to be my legacy. I have no child. I'm going to die. What will Uriah in heaven respond to this offer? Here's what happened. Zot Omeret, the other parent, said, No. I don't want it to be yours, and I don't want it to be mine. Kill it. Let the sword kill it. And at this moment, you see Uriah's motivation for the court case. There's two possible motivations, just like David had two possible motivations. David's two possible motivations are, do I want legacy or just the compassion for a child? At the end, David says, it's just about compassion. I don't need legacy. For Uriah, there's two possible motivations. One is legacy. Legacy is being offered to him. It's going to be your child. But there's another possible motivation, another reason why he's building the court case. Spite. I don't care. I just want to make you feel pain. And if I can make you feel pain by killing the child, then I don't want the child either. God listens to that and says, okay, you have a right to say that. You don't want the child, and it's his child, the child has to die then. You have a right to say that. But just because you have the right to say that doesn't mean it was the good thing to do. There was a biological child. There was a biological of one a child of one man. There was a custody battle, and this custody battle between you and David ended badly. God said, "I'm going to make another custody battle. There's going to be another child. There's going to be a Plan B." And now the Yeladachai is Shlomo. Give Shlomo to that to that mother. That's the real mother. Mida keneged Mida. David lost one custody battle, and he's going to lose another one too. There's going to be a battle. There's going to be a child that's going to be born. Whose father is it? Just like the first question, just like the first child, whose father is it? Is David the father? Or is God the father? God says, the only way this child lives is if I'm the father. 
if he carries on my legacy. If the yibum that you offered to Uriah was rejected, but offer that yibum to me and I will take you up on it. It will continue my legacy. And that's why when David names the child, it's not enough that David names the child. God says, no, 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 I predicted before I'm going to be the father. Guess what? I'm the father. That's how the child survives because I'm the father. The child doesn't survive because in Din he survives. The child survives because I took ownership over this kid. It's my legacy. I am the father. And you can call him Shlomo all you want. I'm calling him Edidia. I am the father. And this is the life experience that Shlomo learns. He learns by confronting the sin of his father a whole life in one dream. And suddenly he wakes up wise. He has now understood the truth about his father. The terrible moment we all grow up and we're no longer a narakatan and we realize that our children are fallible and they have problems and they make terrible mistakes. But at that moment, we can sometimes also realize a hidden truth. Our parents are heroes too. And Shlomo becomes privy to a hidden heroism of David of what that prayer was. The Tanakh tells you now what that prayer was, an offer of Yibam. Right? I don't want the child to be mine. I just want the child to, be, to live. And now, David will truly stand for Shlomo as a role model, a person who sinned terribly, who may have now and then been deficient in Emet, Zedakah, and Mishpat when it counted, but was also able to redeem that through a prayer. And because of that prayer, Shlomo was allowed to be born. And Shlomo's Mishpat is influenced by that. It's a mishpat that understands that there's a tzedek and there's a right thing and there's a compassionate thing to do. God taught it to him through confronting his own the sins of his own father and understanding why Shlomo, like Yitzchak before him, the impossible child, truly has a lease on life. Thank you very much.